Welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunts Backcountry Podcast. Our Monday Minute episodes are shorter, more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Normally, it is just myself and Steve who do that. Today, we're joined by our good friend, Corey Jacobson, who I'm probably pretty dang sure you're aware is a phenomenal elk caller and elk hunter. And he joined us today to answer some of your elk hunting related questions. Before we dive into that, it is also the last day to enter into the August giveaway. We're giving away an elk call package from our friends at Born and Raised Outdoors. So again, today, August 14th, 2023 is the last day to enter. If you haven't done that yet, hit pause right now. Go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You can enter there. Takes just a couple of seconds. And then you can also get a link to the elk call package that you'll be winning from Born and Raised Outdoors. So again, go ahead and do that right now if you haven't already. Come on back. Let's dive right in with our friend, Corey Jacobson. Well, Corey, uh, welcome back. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. I know it's uh, it's been a crazy, crazy stretch of the summer for you. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, We're coming up on elk season, so always excited to talk about elk hunting right before elk season. Yeah, absolutely. We we had you on last and talked about the In the Zone series that you've been doing on YouTube, uh, which since we published that podcast, there's been a few more episodes. Off chance of someone's listening to this and don't didn't hear that podcast or hasn't seen that series, we give like a the two-second breakdown version of what is that series and what is the benefit of doing that for folks? Yeah. So we just, we get a ton of requests to break down hunts and and go through and say, you know, we watched the hunt, we learned a lot from it. It was super entertaining, but I'd like to know why you moved when you did or why you stayed there, or why you used this call or, you know, just all the little details that in the heat of the moment, you don't get a chance to just turn to the camera and explain. So in the zone is basically we take uh, some of our previous hunts and break them down. And we've got some really cool 3D technology uh, to get some motion graphics and, you know, really take a look on 3D imagery, you know, where the elk is on the ridge, where we're set up on a bench, you know, however it is. And we can show the caller and the shooter. And if the you know shooter's getting up and moving towards the elk or if he's staying put and the caller's moving around in the background, we can just really dive into every detail about that setup and that situation. So each episode is just a, a different hunt that we break down and go into detail about what we did, why we did it, what we should have done different, what worked, what didn't work. And uh, it's it, they've been really popular. People are really liking them just because of that detail that we're able to to visually show. I like how like each episode has a kind of a focus, right? Like it's a hunt and it's a real scenario. It's only it has a quote unquote theme after the fact, like based on what really happened in the hunt. But like recent episodes of drawing a bull across open country versus a different episode that's about setups and dark timber for example so it's really neat uh and we're gonna actually tie some listener questions in to some of that here in a minute one thing i saw on your youtube channel as i was watching in the zone was you recently did an elk call review um i thought it was super cool to see that i know historically you know you've you've had some associations with elk calls that's changed a little bit and i mean you can give me the details and the listeners the details but you sat down with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of elk calls <laughs> fully independently uh recently and did kind of 
like a, a review or like just kind of shared your findings after testing a whole bunch of stuff. So I'd love to have the, again, the 30,000 foot view of your findings there. Yeah, no, it's uh you know, and I've been, my parents started Rocky mountain hunting calls back in, I don't even know, early nineties. And so I haven't really played around with a lot of calls, you know, I'll, I'll have a call or somebody will give me one and I'll put it in and, and blow it. But, you know, I've spent so much time designing the elk 101 line of calls for the last 10 or 12 years that those have been my go-to just because, you know, I've had a hand in, in the design and creation of them. Uh, so they worked really good for me, obviously. And uh, I'm, I'm no longer involved with Rocky mountain hunting calls. My parents sold it uh, about five years ago and I've decided to move away from that. And uh unfortunately involved in some legal issues there that hopefully we get resolved soon and can move forward with full steam. But uh, due to that, as I was preparing for the World Elk Calling Championships this year, and then uh, also knowing that elk season was coming up, I ordered just about every diaphragm that's available. So I I ordered calls from Phelps, uh, Born and Raised Outdoors, uh, from mile high note game call from Slayer. Uh, gosh, I feel like I'm forgetting some there. Um, well, anyway, there were a bunch of them. <laughs> it's several hundred dollars worth of, uh, literally every diaphragm that those manufacturers make. And I went through them and just found, you know, some of them didn't work for me at all. Some of them, you know, I, Oh, the, the new company Riven was another one that I tried, um, and some of the calls that I tried, I couldn't even make noise with. And I look at it and I think, how are these companies still in business? Or how is this diaphragm still on the shelf? I've been using diaphragms a long time and I can't even make sound with this one. But it just goes to show that everybody's mouth shape is different. Everyone's calling style is different. Everyone's need is different. And so there is a need for a, a lot of variation in the design of calls. But from that uh I don't even know how many I had, 80 different diaphragms maybe. I went through and narrowed it down and I found probably eight that worked good for me. You know, I wouldn't say that they were all standout or that they were all, you know, what I would be looking for, but they worked good enough that I could say I could pick up this diaphragm and go out elk hunting tomorrow and know that it's going to going to perform. What I haven't had a chance to check yet is how they last during season. So I'm excited to do that. I've actually ordered uh, a handful of the ones that worked good for me and excited to put them through the actual test in the field uh, coming up here in just a few weeks. According to your standard, what's what's the lifetime of an elk read? Like I was just cleaning out my garage this weekend and I got some like four-year-old reeds. Like I probably should throw these away. Like, do you replace a reed once a week, you know, once a season, once every two years? Like what's that look like? Knock the mold off and keep going or what? Yeah. How does yeah. that look? <laughs> you know, a diaphragm will last if it's taken care of. And that's the hard part because if you, if it's wet and you put it in a Ziploc bag, it's going to just, you know, just disintegrate that latex. The latex is going to break down and not be any good. If you leave it on the dash of your truck uh, for a day and it gets really hot, you're going to notice a bunch of wrinkles in the latex and it's not going to, not going to perform. Uh, so the best thing to do is, you know, when you're done with it, rinse it off in water, 
pat it dry with a paper towel, you know, put it in something breathable that's going to keep it out of the light and then store it like in the refrigerator, even just in your closet. But you don't want it in sun, you don't want it in heat, and you don't want it to stay wet for very long when you put it away. And if you do that, they're going to last a long time. I've got diaphragms that I've had for three years that I keep using, like in the calling contest, I find one that works. I use it, I take care of it, I put it away. When it comes to elk season, though, there are some days where I'll blow out a diaphragm in a day. Just if you're in the heat of calling and you're calling over and over, you know, the tip of my tongue will be raw, the roof of my mouth will hurt, my jaw muscles will be sore, and the poor diaphragm just gets a workout and, and doesn't last. But typically, you should, two diaphragms should last you a week of hunting. And that is, you know, for an average hunt where, you know, you're bugling location bugles, you get a couple encounters a day, maybe. Uh, and then you're taking care of the diaphragm, storing it in a pouch or in a sleeve where it can breathe and it's not sitting in the sun on the dash of the truck. Uh, two diaphragms should last you for a week of hunting. That's much quicker than I expected. What, what do you notice happens when it goes bad? Uh, so if you look at a, a diaphragm and the latex is the part that actually makes the sound on the diaphragm, if you start noticing wrinkles in that, it has either the, the latex has broken down and allowed it to sag enough that it's not stretched tight. Um, and some of them are stretched tighter than others, but there shouldn't be wrinkles, noticeable wrinkles in the latex. If there is, you're going to get inconsistencies and it's not going to perform as well. Uh, if it gets discolored, that's usually from leaving it in the sun where it gets uh, exposed to light or heat, uh, or if it gets put away wet and sealed up and it can't dry out, the saliva will break down the, the latex and you'll notice wrinkles. So discoloring or uh, wrinkle, noticeable wrinkles, a little divot or a dimple in it's not going to hurt anything. But when you start seeing multiple wrinkles in the latex, it's probably not going to perform very well. Another thing takeaway is shocking is like said so you ordered all these reads and out of all of them you found seven. Like I would think you is that you being like seven that you would take to a calling contest or like out of all the other ones just didn't produce a sound you think would call an elk in? Yeah, I mean I I could manipulate them to make a sound that sounded somewhat like a cow or somewhat like a bugle, but it took a lot of effort. And so the seven or eight I found are ones that I could. They definitely aren't ones that I would take to a contest. Out of that, there were probably three that I could have practiced with and taken to a contest, and, and that's what I did use. Um, and even in that, you know, for contest level calling, I just need it to be perfect. Like it has to just roll through every note really smoothly. And that comes down to individual. I mean, that's uh, mm -hmm. in the manufacturing process out of 10 diaphragms, you'll find one that's good for a contest. The other, the other nine are hundred percent functional and work great for, for hunting. But when you have to make the perfect sound, the perfect pitch, hold the high note, you know, hit the low notes, everything. Uh, when I find one diaphragm style that works, I need 10 of them to, to get one and pull it out. That's ready for the contest. Is it blow one bugle out of it and you go, Oh yeah, that one works. Or does it yep. kind of go like, yeah. Okay. Yep. No, I can tell immediately. And you know, for hunting, if I get a pop in the middle of a bugle, or if there's a little uh, fluctuation in the cow call where it, where it pops as you go from the high note to the low note, I don't care about that for hunting. That's, 
you know, an elk's not going to notice elk aren't that perfect. But when I'm trying to impress a human judge with control and consistency and everything, I want to eliminate any of those variables. When you're, I'm bouncing all over the place here. When you're calling (laughs) elk, is it more about the how it does it how pretty it sounds or is it more about like cadence and responding to you know like you're bugling on a bull and how you're responding to them does it i've heard some nasty bull like bulls that you're just like oh that's a hunter right and then he walks in and it's like i don't know that's that's an elk um what's your take on that yeah so you know it's cadences I wouldn't even say it's all that important. Um, Being a good caller and making a pretty bugle isn't necessarily important. I think it's conveying what you want to tell the, what you want to tell the elk. And if I'm using calls, I'm either telling a bull that, Hey, there's a cow here. You need to come check out, or there's a bull here that you need a reason to, to come into. And, And that reason obviously is to fight. So if I'm trying to seduce a bull with cow calls, uh, I want to, I want to sound like a cow that wants to be with that bull. I want to communicate with that bull. Um, I want the, the calls to be somewhat desperate sounding, somewhat pleading, you know, like, Hey, I want you to come over here and, and hang out with me, not just a communication mew. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to put a little bit of that feeling into it. And then with the bugle, uh, you know, I, sometimes I'll bugle the bull and it's like, wow, that came out of nowhere. I don't even know what I was, you know, what that, what that sound was trying to say but it's the emotion in it you know i just get so fired up i'm like i'm so tired of going back and forth with this bowl and i just want to get it done with so here it comes and you know Mm -hmm. so rather than worrying about that pretty staircase that goes up and hits that high note and holds it and comes down and has the perfect cadence on the chuckles at the end what i'm doing is just screaming with my diaphragm at the elk and you know you can hear it in some of our videos it's like well that was you know, you, you can feel the emotion and you know what I'm trying to tell the bull, but it was like, that wouldn't win any contest. Mm-hmm. So I think the, what you're saying um, is somewhat important, but I think the most important feature of calling elk is how you're saying it. Interesting. Yeah. I've just been in, I haven't got the opportunity to hunt with you yet. Hopefully someday that we can make that happen, but hunted with Cody a lot. And it's like, there's just, yeah, I don't know what, I can't hear what they're doing different. We just, call more elk than, than I certainly would on my own, like, like, you know, significantly higher amount. Uh, you just can't I just, hear I, I how can, bad I'm, you are, I'm, Steve. I know. I guess that's <laughs> what I want to figure out. Like, <laughs> I'm so bad. I just shut up and just sneak quietly around the woods and have way better luck doing that. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I think is important to mention when it comes to calling elk is the, every step closer you get, the odds of you calling that elk in go up. So mm-hmm. calling an elk from 300 yards is a completely different game than calling at that same elk from 120 yards. So if you're able to get close, you know, even if it's just 20 yards closer, every little bit that you're able to get closer before you set up and try to call is going to increase the odds of that elk coming into the calls. It just, you know, again, it goes back to what you're trying to tell that elk. And if you're wanting to start a fight with an elk, uh, the closer and the more in his face you are, the the easier it's going to be to push those buttons. So, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, I set up and, you know, had good wind and had a good setup and everything. And the elk just wouldn't budge. You know, I think he probably had cows or I think he, you know, might've been pressured or something. 
And you start asking them how close were you? I don't know, probably like 300 yards, 400 yards. And I'm like, okay, could have you gotten closer? I'm like, oh yeah, I could have, but I just, you know, I wanted to set up and call the bull into me. And if you're able to get a hundred yards closer, that bull's going to respond completely differently than what he did at 300 or 400 yards. I still like you called that out, Steve, but man, I, I'm still like getting over the fact that Corey, you essentially had like a called out a one out of 10 quote unquote success rate, or, you know, you, you only found one out of 10 calls that you really would go hunt with. Cause yeah. I was expecting that it would be a, you know, I've heard guys say like, Oh, you could give, you know, you give Levi Morgan any bow and he would go, you know, crush a competition or hunt. And I thought that that was going to be like that with you. Like Corey can make any of these 80 calls, like, or at least 90% of them sound great, but it was the exact opposite that it's only 10% shows how personalized that is in a way. Totally. And I could, like I said, I could make sounds with them, but man, there were some of them I literally couldn't even hit a high note with. There were some of them that there's no way I could cow call with because that, you know, I just couldn't make a, a soft, sweet sound. And you hear some hunters that as soon as they blow, in fact, I got a message from a guy on Instagram this morning and he was practicing. He's like, I'm coming along here. And I could instantly tell that he's using a diaphragm with a thick latex that's stretched tight. And he's just not able to get that range out of it. He's really happened to force that thick latex to be able to hit the different notes. And I was just like, man, if you change to find one that's the exact same frame, everything's the same. So it fits your mouth good, but just get a lighter latex on it. It's going to make a world of difference in the sound you're able to make with it. And when we were doing, you know, shows a lot, we'd go to the shows and people would come up to the booth and we'd be talking about diaphragms and they'd be like, yeah, I'm just not a good caller. And, you know, I think I've mentioned it before, but they would call and I was like, man, you're right. You're not a good caller, but you're using a triple reed turkey diaphragm and nobody's going to be a good caller trying to use that here. Try this diaphragm. And they put it in and they make a sweet cow. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought, I, I thought it was just me. I just, you know, bought the first diaphragm I saw in the store and put it in and thought, well, I guess I'm not made to to call elk with a diaphragm. And it just takes finding that right one because there are so many variations of them. Mm. Yeah. Do you personally have like a single read, double read, triple read? Does that exist in your what you're doing? Or do you find like one read that you can make all sounds with? I try to find one read that I can use for everything so that, you know, it's versatile. I can put it in and bugle. And if I have to drop my bugle tube and then make a cow call 10 seconds later, when the bull steps into a lane, I can do that. I don't, I definitely don't switch out, you know, between cow calls and bugles or anything. If I start noticing that a, one of my diaphragms is sounding really sweet for cow calls, it's really broken in, but I can't hit the high note for a bugle. I just toss it, you know, at that point it's, it's not versatile and I want something that'll make every sound. So is everything a single read then? Yeah, I don't even, a double read is great for turkeys because you get that drastic drop off of the, you know, the cluck, but it's just completely different with it. You want it to hit a note and then immediately stop for a turkey sound. For elk, you want it to roll. You want it to roll from one note to another and you want it to be a smooth transition. And the purpose of having, you know, double latex in there is to get a pop, to get a, a very abrupt transition. So I know some people that will bugle with a, a double or even a triple latex, um, and you get a pretty distinct pop between each of the notes and the scale and everything. But man, trying to cow call with a double or triple latex is, it, it can probably be done, but it's going to take an awful lot of effort. Hmm. I always thought 
uh, you could get like a louder bugle with double reed, triple reed? No, not necessarily. I mean, that that's not going to make it louder. What what typically happens is you're using a thicker latex and then layering it with a thinner latex. And it's that thicker latex that allows you to just really put a lot more force into it and make it louder. So a single okay. latex with a thicker latex that's stretched a little tighter, uh, you're going to be able to really horse on that and put a lot of force into it and make it as loud as you want to. But at the exact same time, you know, I've got a, a light latex, single latex that just when you hit that perfect vibration, that perfect, you know, resonation of it, it'll pierce your ears like that high note will be so loud and so shrill that uh, mm. even with a light one, you can, you can utilize it to be loud as well. Okay. Such good stuff. That was like uh way more than I was expecting, but good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, do, we do have the, we have the video on our YouTube channel that goes through me demonstrating each of them and talking about it. But you know, there was, what was cool is there was really, one from each manufacturer that that I was able to use well and that stood out. So um, the good news is if you've got a favorite manufacturer, then there's probably a diaphragm you can find from them. There were a couple that just because of the design of the frame or different things fit my mouth better and and I gravitated toward those more. We're going to have that link to that video in the show description for folks listening. Just check it out. You can find that link right there. Um. Corey, this is this is like off script again from the main topic, but one of the <laughs> things is we've been so busy, we haven't touched base much. I'm curious to hear this like very personal answer. What have you noticed in K4? Because I know that you you've obviously been using Exopax forever and been through all the generations, and this isn't not meant to be a commercial. Say whatever that you want, but just now that you've been using K4 for a bit, like what stands out to you? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think right off first thing is the hip belt. Mm. Uh, and I've all, you know, Steve and I have talked for 10 years or longer about yeah. my, my weird hips. You know, I put a heavy load on a backpack and for years it just slid right over my hips. I couldn't get the, the waist belt to lock in. And so, you know, K2, K3 improved on that for sure. We even played around with different foam in the lumbar area, you know, a thicker, more dense foam trying to lock in. And uh, there, there's been huge improvements with each version of the pack, but there is no doubt the K4, when I put it on, I you know, it wears a little bit higher. It sits a little higher, but man, it does not let a load slide down on my hips, which all that does is shows where the weakness in my hips and my knees are because now they're <laughs> taking all of it. My, my shoulders don't have to take any, which is what you want in a pack. So that's been the biggest thing. You know, I think uh, when I first put it on, it felt stiff and rigid and I thought, oh, you know, my K3 was broken in and just moved with me and, and fit really well and comfortable. And the K4 felt a little rigid and stiff but it broke in you know within two uses uh, it felt comfortable and it maintained that rigidity in the in the waist belt so i actually just this weekend uh, rode three tanks of gas through my motorcycle doing a bunch of scouting and checking trail cameras and setting trail cameras and i wore the pack the entire time and then i hiked probably eight miles or so on thursday uh, just hiking in to retrieve tail, trail cameras and stuff and had it all. And I was using the the smaller day pack on it for this trip. But um, 
yeah, it's it's a, it's a huge improvement in the ability to carry heavier weight without sliding down on your hips. Yeah, I was. I remember Corey was one of the guys at a list of guys, you know, like, that have had slipping issues in the past, and Corey was one I was very interested in. Like, how's it going, Corey? What's you know, what's the feedback here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like, some guys I know is just going to work, you know. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, and that stiffness thing—that's one of the with uh we're trying to do our best to communicate guys like it's just it needs a little break-in period k3 like it's going to feel the best it ever feels the second you put it on and once you set it up in k4 takes takes a little break in but that's uh once it breaks in then it's going to be hits that sweet spot and it's going to hold it for a lot longer um, because the foam is a little bit more kind of dense and um yeah yeah and I, i think i'd compare it to boots you know when you try on a pair of boots you can tell what the fit is like, but they always, a new pair of boots always feels more stiff than it's going to be a week later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the foot bent on it, every, you know, the fit of it on your foot, I think is what I look for more than anything. And I'll walk upstairs inside in boots and be like, yeah, you know, the heel's not sliding around or anything, but man, it almost feels like you're walking in ski boots the first time you put it on. And by the middle of elk season, you're like, holy cow, I've got to lace these things up three times because they're stretching, you know, they're just forming around your foot and and they're breaking in. And mm-hmm. the pack is the same way. So for somebody, you know, they try on the pack, like, I don't know, it feels kind of stiff and it's not as comfortable as my K3 was. Trust me, it's uh, that's, it's meant to be like that. And after just a few uses, that thing is, if I don't even notice that it's not as comfortable anymore. And the benefit of that extra weight you can carry without having to carry it on your back and shoulders makes a huge difference. Corey, let's dive into uh, a listener question. This guy wrote in and said, I love your podcast and all the great information it provides. I had a question for a Monday Minute episode. How do you find elk in a unit that is predominantly dark timber? The unit I will be hunting this fall has very few openings and is primarily just dark timber. I know that elk need food, water, and shelter, but how do you break down a unit uh, that's primarily dark timber according to those different needs that the elk has? And how do I figure out where the elk want to be within this unit? Uh, I think it's a good question. Maybe a a tough one to give a a single answer to, but what are some things that you would encourage this guy to do or to look at or look for? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question. That's exactly where I hunt. We hunt dark timber, very few openings. So we definitely aren't using optics uh, to to spot elk and then go hunt them. Uh, Two things. So you've got e-scouting, you know, what are you looking for e-scouting an area? You aren't able to see open ridges. So finding good feed sources is tough, but in dark timber, typically there's, there's going to be plenty of feed sources spread out. So feed sources are going to be harder to, to locate uh, water sources. Sometimes you can see the brighter green spots uh, in the draws that kind of show up and you're like, okay, there's a spring there. Even in that heavier timber, sometimes you can, you can differentiate that. Um, but I think what I really look for in those areas when I'm e-scouting is just north faces. So I'm just looking for all of the north faces that look like they would be a good place for an elk to to bed down. So a north face with a bench about two-thirds of the way up the hillside, things like that. And then I'll, I'll put a pin on those areas and then I'll go out in the field. And when I'm in the field, you know, if I'm scouting in the field, I'm verifying that those areas, you know, there's trails going on those north faces. Uh, there's bedding areas in there, maybe looking for some rubs and then verifying 
water, you know, at that point, because that's, that's critical. The elk have to have water, whether it's a, a spring, a wallow, a creek, a pond, you know, something, they have to have water, especially in August, September timeframe. And then when it comes to actually hunting those elk, it's just a matter of putting on miles, you know, locating elk in the field during season in that heavy timber area. I'm just hiking all day long. I'm hiking and looking for fresh sign. I'm looking for tracks. I'm looking for wallows and rubs. And then I'm throwing out location bugles at every vantage point I come to. So, you know, if I'm hiking up this ridge and I get to a point where the ridge turns and goes a different direction, that creates a vantage point out into that area in front of me that I'm going to bugle into. So I, I, like I said, I don't even carry binoculars sometimes uh, when we're hunting because I'm only able to see 80 yards at a time and never able to see beyond that. So my six power rangefinder works if I need to verify, is that an elk up there 80 yards away? You know, I can pull those up and look, but I, that's how I like to hunt. I don't, I don't care if I get a visual on an elk. I just want to hear an elk bugle or get in close to elk and then start using the calls. So it's a great question and it definitely uh, limits you a little bit on scouting and on locating elk. But at the same time, if you can cover country, uh, you know, I, I always say rifle hunting is more difficult for me than archery hunting because I can't use a bugle to locate elk. If I bugle into an area and an elk doesn't answer in my mind, there's not an elk there and I'm going to find a new area. But if an elk does answer, I know hundred percent that there's an elk there. And when I'm rifle hunting, when the elk aren't calling, it's a, uh, in my mind, it's, it's always a question, is there an elk there? And all you can really use is either optics or looking for sign. So if this was a mid-October hunt, obviously there's definitely potential that bulls, some bulls are bugling, but obviously not it's totally different than, you know, the primary rut in September. Would you have a different strategy? Would you just kind of still hunt timber? Would you, because obviously, as you just said, it's going to be much more difficult, at least for your hunting style. Yeah, no, and that's, that's, I think, why I've struggled so much as a rifle hunter, especially growing up in northern Idaho, where it is all thick. And, you know, our game plan then was, yeah, still hunt, just walk along, look for signs, stop every 20 yards and just listen, look around, listen for a, a stick breaking. Uh, I think since then I've learned, especially, you know, Randy Newberg has got he, he's the rifle guy. He's the post rut late season guy, but it all focuses around feed and where they're going to find the best feed. And in that heavy timbered canopy in October and November, they might not be, there might not be a lot of feed in that area. So they're going to have to be finding openings. And so you are able to narrow down areas that, Hey, there's a, a logging area up here. There's a clear cut up here, or there's a, a meadow or an open hillside and, you know, I'm still going to spend time still hunting that thick timber, but first thing in the morning, last light in the afternoon, I'm going to be focused around those open areas where the elk are going to be coming out and feeding. Yeah. We had another uh, email that's great. I, I would love to read the whole thing because it lays out such great context and history. Uh, but I, I, yeah, it's long, but good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and give you um, the overview, Corey. This guy wrote in, he's been hunting, or sorry, he's been elk hunting since 2016. He's hunted six out of the seven Septembers since then. So it's all been archery all in September. Basically said over those years, those six years of elk hunting, he has become more proficient at calling, more proficient at finding elk, etc. So he's feeling really confident 
in that regard, but he struggled to actually kill an elk. So, hey, I've called elk, I've found elk, I feel like I can locate elk, but I'm really struggling, you know, in that last opportunity to to close the deal with a bow and bow range. And in particular, he laid out how um, on last year's hunt, he was hunting uh, the window of September 18th to 27th. He got into some good um, bulls, north-facing timber, a lot of what we just talked about. They were talkative. It was an unpressured area, so we had great responses. Long story short, he ended up coming to full draw four times on different bulls over the course of this hunt. Uh, he mentioned how essentially every time he had them within bow range, but just could not get a clear shot at the elk or, you know, to the vitals. He would see the elk and things like that. But again, he's hunting midday bedding areas, thicker, dark timber. So he laid out a couple of different ideas and basically said for these opportunities, should I have just risked taking a few steps to one side to clear the obstacles and get a shot off before the elk busted? Should I have used something like a decoy? Should I have skipped calling these bulls altogether and just tried to creep in inch by inch and sneak in on them? Uh, and then another detail I left out, Corey, he's been doing all this solo and he did talk about how when he calls, he moves, you know, he tries to play the wind. He tries to get off of his calling spot. So he's doing, man, a lot, a lot of stuff, right? But I guess at the end of the day for this guy or for any hunters who may have struggled, you know, in that, that last little bit when everything has to come together with bow in your hand, what advice do you have in general or does any of those should I have statements from this guy ring true to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he's at that point where you go from being um, so close to figuring it out. And I think that there's a, there's a tipping point there that he's just about to break over into becoming a consistently successful elk hunter. And it is, it's that last bit. It's, it, it becomes easier every year to locate elk, to know what to look for in the field, to find the elk, to understand a little bit better what you do wrong when you're calling. But that last bit, the, the piece that is the, the critical conjuncture of putting the approach, the location, all of that to putting a tag on an elk is the setup. And, you know, when you said he's a solo hunter, I thought, well, okay, that's, that was my first thing was if you're hunting with a partner, you just gotta, you know, that elk is hanging up just before he steps in your shooting lane. That's the the setup of the collar. The collar just needs to be in a location where the elk has to come a little bit farther before he can see where the calls are coming from. Um, so that would have been my first suggestion if he if it was a two person setup. Knowing that he's a solo hunter, that definitely changes things. But he's doing it right as far as calling and moving ahead. The fact that he comes to full draw four times, he should be getting a shot. So first thing that comes to mind is his setup. You know, when he moves ahead, you have to make sure you have shooting lanes. And if he's coming to full draw and has yelk within bow range, the only reason he's not getting a shot is there's obstacles preventing it. So he doesn't have good shooting lanes. And, you know, a lot of times you're by yourself, you call, you move forward. It's like, okay, I can't go any farther. I'm stuck right here. Uh, so you're limited on that, but you know, you can, as you're looking ahead, you're like, okay, there's an awesome shooting lane up there. I'm going to get up there and call instead of doing that, stay back where you are and call and then move up into those shooting lanes, which I think sometimes 
we like to move until we can see what's in front of us and then we call and then the bull answers and we move ahead and we aren't thinking ahead about am i moving into a good shooting lane uh, so that would be the the first thing um the other thing is yeah I, I think it's that coming to full draw and finally pulling the trigger that's the that's the difference between tag soup and and shooting an elk is you've got to pull that trigger and so if he's at full draw four times the bull's within bow range uh, at some point, you might have to take a chance. You might have to take a step out around a tree and hope the elk doesn't spook, which nine times out of 10, they're going to spook immediately and you aren't going to get a shot. But there have been so many times where I've had an elk come in where I get pinned without being able to draw. And the elk comes in to 25 yards and he's staring right at me. And I'm sitting there with my bow down in front of me with an arrow knocked going, I'm not even going to get drawn back. At that point, you, you know that the bull's going to spook. He's going to bust out of there. It's not like he's going to just relax all of a sudden and you're going to get to draw your bow back. So I've just learned to take that chance. And it's like, hey, I've got a 90 to 10 chance that, you know, he's going to spook. But that 10% is better than the 0% I have if I don't do anything. So I will, you know, I'll take a chance and draw a bow with an elk staring right at me in the wide open, you know, 25 yards away and just hope that, for whatever reason, he's so confused that he, you know, he doesn't spook. Or if he does turn and run, as soon as I draw, I'll cow call. Or I'll, as I'm starting to draw, I'll cow call and you know, hope that it captures his attention. So, I, th I think that uh, if there's one thing I've learned that's pushed me from being so close to getting more shot opportunities, it is take that chance. You know, take take a chance of getting a shot rather than being content with getting to full draw. And when I say take a chance, that's not saying wing a bad shot or shoot through brush or anything. It's, you know, take a chance with creating a, a good shot. That's a helpful distinction, Corey. We, we so often hear of like call and then move, you know, move ahead. Like that's how it's typically phrased. But when you're talking about shooting lanes, I think it could be helpful to think of find the shooting lane, move back to call right so there's the thinking call then move ahead it's almost like find the right spot get to there realize what that is realize what your shooting lanes are then maybe move off that spot specifically to call and then just get right back to this rd on a quote-unquote proven spot where you have some good shooting lanes absolutely and you don't have to move far you know that's the if you're broadcasting your calls in a direction and moving you can fool a bull by 40 or 50 yards pretty easily, you know, just by muffling a cow call and then moving ahead 10 yards or pointing your bugle tube back behind you and then moving off to the side 10 yards. You know, you can really fool a bull to a degree, you know, you aren't going to fool him by a hundred yards or anything, but all you need is just to buy an extra 20 or 30 yards of separation between where the sound is theoretically coming from and where you actually are. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't take anything. If I'm moving up on an elk and I can tell he's just over a ridge and I get right up on that ridge, I'm like, if I step over any farther, he's going to see me. And if I call from there, he's not going to come up because he knows I'm right on the ridge and he'd have to be face to face with me to see me. So I might step back just five yards and cow call down off the backside real softly and make him think that cow's still another 60 yards down off the backside. I'm comfortable coming up to the ridge but then I just slide down the ridge 10 yards and I'm waiting there and he pops out, you know, sometimes it's close, but it gives you that chance to, to utilize uh, a little bit of ventriloquism to get that elk to think you're farther than you really are. And that's, you know, the combination of directing your calls and moving, you can, 
you can fool an elk pretty good doing both of those things at the same time. Going back to the uh, moving, like I've, I've done that, uh, creating a shooting lane. I've done that a lot on elk. I bet you half the elk I've killed is if I've got an obstacle, I'll draw and then basically get my pin, you know, like right where it needs to be. And then just sidestep, you know, two steps to the left, get a shooting lane and shoot. And the, the elk are, in my experience, if they came into the scenario, they're looking for an elk, they're looking for movement. So you all, you have a couple seconds there to get a shot off uh, where they're going to, they're going to catch your movement and go, Oh, what is that? And then they have to process it. And usually you can sneak that arrow and just got to be careful that uh, it's not too far and they're going to jump the crap out of the string. Yeah. I'm, it's not like I'm going to step out into an open meadow at 60 yards and take three steps to, you know, get a shot on a bull and then fling an arrow and not expect mm-hmm. him to whirl and run. But yeah, if he's 20 to 30 yards and you need to step to the side two or three steps even to get out there um, and you can time it. So, you know, when he turns his head, if he's there and he's kind of just stopped and he's looking for that elk, you're at full draw on him and you aren't getting a shot and you aren't going to get a shot standing there you know, wait and watch what he's doing. Does he turn his head and look behind him at his cows? Take a step out then. Is he, you know, looking straight ahead? Because if he's looking straight ahead, when you move, he's almost always going to turn his head to see what that movement is. And that buys you a little bit of time. And then a, a cow call right then is going to confuse him enough. That he's going to be like, hold on, got to process this another second there. So there's little things you can do to, to minimize or slow down the bull's reaction to get out of there. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Corey. Are there other in the zone episodes still coming out before uh, September 1st? Yeah, we just, uh, we had one, I think our latest one came out uh, last week. And that's when you referenced about, you know, how do you get close to elk and call elk when you're in the wide open? And then uh, probably my favorite one is coming out next week. I think the 22nd of August is when it comes out. And it's the the one, if if anybody watched Destination Elk last year, Donnie shot a bull and it ended up jumping into a lake and dying in a lake. Um, but we break down the, not the not the blood trailing and the jumping in the lake portion, but the calling and the setup and, and how we really moved around a lot and utilized uh, some of the cover behind the meadow where the elk were to, especially for me as the caller, being dynamic and really moving, knowing where the bull was, trying to to pull it right in front of Donnie. Well, again, those links are uh, in the show description for listeners. Go check out, uh, not only see the episodes that are there, but just make sure you hit subscribe on the Elk 101 YouTube so that you do get those future In The Zone episodes and all the other content you're putting out. Um, Corey, thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and good luck to you guys and to all your listeners here uh, in elk season opening just in a couple weeks.